after they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them, it is you who said by you the Holy Spirit through your ancestors, David, your servant. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people imagined vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers had gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at thee at their threats, and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs of wonder are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at their feet. The word of God to the world.
Holy Spirit and spoke boldly. All the believers were one in heart and soul. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Is this not the dream for the church? This is great stuff. It's obvious here, Peter and John, the community, have come back after being imprisoned, after healing a man, after proclaiming Christ's resurrection, that they are filled. And something interesting happens. The praying community becomes a generous community. Prayer and generosity go hand in hand. And the disciples begin to get a taste of what this new community is like. Prayer leads to this bigness of heart and mind. It creates a posture that opens up and unfurls our hands, and we realize that the God who created everything out of nothing can do the same with our lives. This is good news. No matter where we find ourselves today, no matter what's been shattered, what death has been faced, the good news is that God creates something out of nothing. And this is the very stuff that motivates them to be of bold nature. It's the message of the resurrection. It's the message of Christ. And so they're generous. I would contend they're generous in three ways. They're generous with their testimony. Verse 33 says, With great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them. And they acted this out, and they spoke boldly, shared freely, trusted openly. This is what happened when the Holy Spirit takes over. You know, it's, it's not as if they didn't have Exhibit A right in front of them, Peter and John, that had just been thrown into prison for speaking the name of Christ. And yet, they too are inspired, that word of spirit, to share that something was happening, that a kingdom was breaking in that was deeper than political or economic or religious. And it was happening right there. I mean, no wonder they shared their resources. God's kingdom's breaking in. What's there to hold back? But why don't we do that now? Is God's kingdom not breaking in? And so there's this fabulous second way in which they're generous. They with their resources, no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, 
and it was distributed to each as any had need. You know, a lot of times, many of us are like, oh, we should get back to the early church days. As if this was a new concept. But this is a very Jewish concept of jubilee and setting free. I love in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's all these passages where God is trying to bless the people and say, like Michael said, bless you to be a blessing to others. And in Deuteronomy 15.4, he says, God blesses you in your land that there will be no needy person among you. And so this beautiful image of jubilee began provisions of restoring goods and restoring original owners back to their lands and forgiving or wiping out debts. This was an old concept. 700 years later, the early church, the early disciples are figuring this stuff out again. Something about this name Jesus. And they were generous of spirit. In fact, perhaps to me, more than even an economic shift was a spirit shift. They were generous in who they said was in and out and where those lines were drawn. In fact, you know, when they came back from this scene, which we pick up in, this is obviously part three, you may have missed out on the first two, but I don't know about you, but if I had a prison experience, the next day, I wouldn't gather my friends and have a prayer session. Probably. <laughs> I'd be complaining and saying why there was error and injustice and righteous indignation. They gather to pray as this scene opens up. They're praying and they're filled. And yes, they do remember the opposition. And they quote this great line from Psalms that the people are going to rage at this Messiah. When confronted with even something wonderful and good, if it's different within what we've known, it is threatening. I have spent a lot of time with those religious leaders this last week. Actually, the last three, because I kind of find myself one. <sighs> so I've been doing a lot of this sort of mirror face. And what I find is, man, they, this is where my imagination goes, but I really believe they had a longing to follow this Jesus. They saw someone and maybe secretly thought, I love what he teaches. I love how he lives. I love that he does what I want to do. I love that he has table fellowship with whom I want to have table fellowship with. But you know, people would talk. I love that there's no falseness about Jesus. I love that he's the real deal and literally sticks his neck out on a tree. But in the end, 
They say we want to follow. We just can't. Because it goes against everything we've known. It desecrates our sensibilities of good Jewishness, of good temple-goingness, of good religious piety, of good religious purity. And fear comes in and snatches the very growth, the very, the very seedlings and blooms that were beginning in these religious leaders' hearts. And little did they know that if they had just leaned into that relationship with Jesus a little more, the Spirit would have given them the courage to do something new. Did you know that the worst decision that I ever made was becoming a Christian? Sounds odd for a pastor to say. Let me tell you why. The worst decision I ever made became about a person of spunk and energy and spaciousness, exchanging it for code and rule. It took a fearful being and scared the hell into it and learned about fences and walls and containers and not God's playground. This became a landscape of moralism. I remember learning um, rules on sexuality that were quite comical. So I have to share one, because y'all seem very serious right now. <laughs> there were these 10 rules, okay? And there's like 10 levels before an intercourse. So one, two, three. So, you know, like the first one was like eye to eye. Like that was okay. Okay, this is funny. Okay. okay. Well, the fourth rule, the, okay, this, the, the line was drawn right here. I'm not making this up. Was hand to hair. <laughs> the hair. That was, I mean, the next ones were, I mean, it, it was just quite interesting. In fact, um, I remember being very scandalized by hair for quite a while. <laughs> Rules are easier than a relationship. Amen. It took me a long time, long time, to finally figure out who I was if I wasn't a Christian. I went to India. I've told you that many different times. But one thing I haven't told you that was transformative about that experience is I learned the difference between being a Christian and what I found in the Hindu culture for people that wanted to retain culture and be Hindu 
but could follow Christ. And so there was this little word for that in Hindi, to be a Christ follower. And so you could say, I am Hindu, but you could be a Christ follower. And so culture and your obedience didn't have to be at odds with one another. This is what's happened in our American culture. So much of what being a Christian about is about our culture than our faith. So now if someone asks me if I'm a Christian, I say no. I say I'm a Christ follower. It gets worse or better depending on your opinion. Churches are filled with Christians. Christ-filled communities are filled with families. Christ followers. Providence, in two weeks, we will be a teenager for the first time. Thirteen. It's a big deal. It's when the acne comes. <laughs> Just saying, there's other things, but we can't talk about that. <laughs> Bring it on. Some say it would like to respond. There's a reason. It's a rite of passage. Teenagers can be a bit much. Just saying. They can be moody. They can sleep in forever. They can talk back. They can be stubborn. They can eat the whole meal without ever lifting a finger. But there's something very beautiful about becoming a teenager. In fact, so much so that they rebel against old things but they love to try on new things, try on new ways of speaking, new ways of dressing, new ways of believing, new music, ooh, new ways of relating. There's a desire for the real and the authentic. In fact, a good teenager can sniff out any funniness. And most importantly, at that age, what are the relationships that are most important to them? Their friends. It's not their parents anymore, or their teachers, or their pastors. It is their friends. It's this need for community, this need for belonging. It's need for someone to vent my stuff to. You. So you can hear me, and I can hear you. One thing I love that teenagers do as dating begins is this lovely little three-letter phrase, the DTR. Anybody know that? Oh, some of you got teenagers and some of you just were one, so those are you and the ones nodding your heads. The DTR stands for define the relationship. That's what they, they say, you know, we need a DTR. We need an opportunity to take account of where we are. Are we just kind of this casual thing? 
Are we allowed to date other people? Flirt around, you know? Are we going deeper? Are we moving to the next level? But don't touch the hair, just saying. <laughs> join me in an adolescent adventure in Providence. I want us to go deeper. I want to try connection in a different way because the deepening of our church is directly related to the deepening of our relationships. And I think we're ready for the next developmental stage. I said in my recent newsletter article, God is ready to birth something new. As a former pregnant lady, <laughs> I can say I'm feeling it. <laughs> I'm feeling the pains. I know what they feel like. And we're in it. I don't know which trimester we're in, but I'm feeling some movement, so maybe second. We have to listen to God together, and that can only happen in relationship. And that's what I see these Christians doing, these Christ followers, as I like to call them. They didn't know what they were creating. Wayne said a free-for-all. They weren't trying to start a new religion. They were praying and listening to the Holy Spirit. And let me just say as an aside, as I, I move in and finish this sort of state of union, peace, <laughs> is the greatest danger of looking at the early church is trying to create all the right moments. Or, as Rod said deeper, maybe a month ago, sort of romanticizing it and sort of saying it's prescriptive in such and such ways. Um, I think it's interesting in my spirit, I, I, I find myself wanting to recreate this. In fact, I think I'm like, if we could just get the lighting just right, or the lack of, really, and we can get the meal on the table, as so, maybe two fish, a few olives, some figs on the side, and get the prayer that they prayed, and that apostles' teaching piece, then somehow, if we have every piece there, that we're going to start this business. We're going to start shaking and moving, and things are going to happen. And we're going to be filled with boldness. And we're going to be of one heart and mind. And we're going to start sharing all our possessions. Well, in the end and in the beginning, we can and should say, this is not my church, it's not your church, it is God's church. We are God's people, and we need to listen in community. And in that listening, we don't try to, to technique God. That's, that's a big thing. For the moment that we say, this is how we do it, again, the lighting, the table, the prayer. The moment we do that, it has now become another possession. I'm very clear about that. But as this passage of Scripture has created birth pains, or I should say, 
is increase them. I want to say a few ways which how I think we as a 13-year-old church can move into a deeper community. It's not technique. It's not program. But there is an intentionality. Remember, the praying community becomes a generous community. Generous in their time, generous in their testimony, generous in their resources, and generous in their spirit. But the most important word in this passage is that word grace. That it was by God's grace that this happened. And I think, too, for us, the less that we try to technique God and the more we try to receive God and listen and deepen, I think we hear a few things. You've heard one of them. You've heard me say that we are going to begin this get real time. That sounds very technique to me, doesn't it? But really, at its, at its core, it's a contemplative prayer service. A little bit different. The biggest distinction is in September, we're going to be meeting on the first and third Wednesday of the month down below after we eat. We're just going to kind of shift into the time of prayer. But prayer is going to lead us into conversation, storytelling. We know storytelling. This is where we are, Appalachian. So we're going to do some storytelling. We're going to share. But it's going to be rooted in what we already do so well, silence. Listening. Lectio, where we read scripture, but we're going to do it with images. Mago Divina. Another way in which I believe these kind of shifts are happening, a second piece of it, is that we really take a look as a community, as we're in relationship, we look at the infrastructure of our church. We look at our budget. You know, this year, let's not just give, Howard did such a great job, gives us the budget way in advance. And then December, it looks just like it did the last year with some few changes. This year, let's start taking a look at it now. I mean, I don't know about you, but this passage seems to have a little economic ramification. And money where your treasure is, there where your heart be also. We need to take a look at it. As we've said, it is a moral document. We need to take a look at the money spent on buildings, on staff, on ministry, on, on and on and on and on. We need to take a look at it. We need to evaluate. We need to pray. Pray generous. Pray generous through it. We need to look at 
not just our budget, but our existing structures, our ministry teams, everything from our ministry teams, how we do church, personnel, all of it. And ask the question, how does this fit or not fit our values? Our values are worship, hospitality, growth, going to the other, inclusiveness, and simplicity. And the way I think that this is going to happen is that we're going to have to get involved, even come to business meetings, and come and share in this wonderful time of fellowship and talking about who we are as a 13-year-old. That's pretty advanced, I know, for an adolescent. But we got to do it. There's a time when we have to feel a little pressure. And thirdly, part of the way that I see this is that every single person become involved in a small group. And it could be on a sun it could be a Sunday school, it could be free for all, it could be one of the midday week, could be prayer time, could be deeper. There's quite a few things that have been created. But in order to know one another, we have to be involved in more than just coming on Sunday morning. This is how we know people. I mean, it, it's sort of like telling a teenager, <laughs> you know, I want you to really get to know this friend, but you're not allowed to go to slumber parties on Friday night. You're not allowed to go to the skating rink on Saturday. They require, they need, they need <laughs> that time with people. We need it too. We need it too as a church family, as a community. Some of you are facing cancer. Some of you have lost someone significant this week. Some of you are struggling with a chronic illness. Some of you are struggling with depression. Some of you are, are facing some really battles with family life. We need it. We need each other. This is not just coming together once a week. This is true life. This is get real. This is where it's at. And we are there. We're ready. We're ready. And so, and I probably should have prefaced all of this by telling you this, my fifth anniversary, just sort of the motivation of why I just shared all that, and the, and the Providence anniversary. They co-align. And then so this is the impetus of using the Acts passage as a, a platform to ask the very questions that created boldness and community. They're living it out. How do we? This is why, in the fullness of time, this is coming now. And so I want us this morning to embrace our teenage angst. I want us to not be afraid to share 
to listen and to take our relationship to the next level. I want to do that by in the next five minutes at least. I want us, I do want us in the reflect and respond time to give room for the Holy Spirit. Because it's it's our vision. It's our vision. It's who are we? What does community look like to us? And so we have the time. And this is sacred work that we do and sacred play. So let's hold this space of reflecting and responding to.